0: Welcome to Skim This. Biden's Supreme Court pick Katanji Brown-Jackson headed to Capitol Hill for an intense few days of confirmation hearings, where she got fangirled by some senators.
1: You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great
2: American.
0: And grilled by others.
1: So you're not going to answer my question?
0: No, I've answered your question in my answer... You haven't I've answered explained. my question.
1: I'm sitting here asking you and you're declining to answer
0: we'll break down what we learned about Jackson from the marathon hearings. We've also got the context on the other biggest stories from the week, from the new Omicron sub-variant to a controversial abortion bill in Idaho, and the latest drama at Disney. And we're wrapping things up by previewing this Sunday's Oscars, which are finally back in full swing. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr, Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up...
2: Now to the pandemic here at home and what they're now seeing here in the U.S. with this highly transmissible Omicron subvariant.
0: The stealth Omicron variant isn't so stealthy anymore. This week, the World Health Organization said... This subvariant accounted for 86% of new cases globally over the past month or so, and one-third of new COVID cases in the U.S. The subvariant is 30% more transmissible than Omicron. And over the past week, you may have heard about people you know testing positive, from someone in your group chat to Hillary Clinton and Jen Psaki. Still, the threat of this new variant hasn't slowed officials from rolling back virus restrictions. And this week, 10 airline CEOs petitioned President Biden to lift the mask mandate on planes. Whether Biden signs off on that is still TBD, but experts are cautiously optimistic that because this new variant isn't more severe than Omicron, it won't seriously disrupt our return to normal. Okay, next headline. Madeleine Albright, the first woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of State, has died of cancer at the age of 84. The US is mourning its first female Secretary of State. Born in Czechoslovakia to Jewish parents, Albright came to the US in the 1940s after her family fled Nazism and communism in Europe. Albright was on Jimmy Carter's National Security Council and was Bill Clinton's ambassador to the UN. And in 1997, she became the first woman to serve as Secretary of State. As Madam Secretary, Albright had to confront some of the most challenging conflicts in the world, from ethnic cleansing in Kosovo to U.S. tensions with Cuba. And in 2012, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor in the U.S. Albright will be remembered as a trailblazer for women in the field of public service. Here she was back in 1997 on 60 Minutes.
3: Women often wait too long in meetings to make their views known. And then all of a sudden, some man says, whatever it is that you were going to say, and everybody thinks it's brilliant. So I basically taught people never to raise their hands and interrupt. And I think that that's what women need to do.
0: And our next headline. On Monday, the U.S. government declared that Myanmar's military committed genocide against the country's Muslim minority group, called the Rohingya. It's always a big deal when the U.S. government comes out and says that a situation of genocide has or is occurring. That's Rebecca Hamilton, an associate professor at American University Washington College of Law. Hamilton said the Rohingya had faced persecution by the country's government for years. And since 2017, Myanmar's military killed an estimated 10,000 Rohingya people, and forced more than 700,000 people to flee. If you're thinking, it seems like we've known about this violence for a long time, you're right. The US is late to the game here with this week's declaration. But apparently, it's better late than never, because there are some ways this latest announcement could create more international pressure on Myanmar's military, and bring survivors one step closer to justice this determination can still help with political will for accountability after the fact.
3: The other thing that it could make a meaningful difference from the perspective of survivors is Rohingya refugees who have made it to the US, who are on temporary protection visas. This is another layer of argument for why they need support. And so there might be an impact in terms of US immigration decisions for that reason also. And our final
0: headline
2: this week. Idaho Governor Brad Little has signed an abortion ban bill that is modeled on the Texas law.
0: On Wednesday, Idaho's governor signed a new abortion law that looks a little familiar. It's modeled after a controversial Texas law that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, which is before many women even know that they're pregnant. You also might remember that Texas law allows everyday people to sue anyone who aids and abets an abortion. And this new law in Idaho also bans abortions after six weeks and allows for family members of what the legislation calls a pre-born child to sue the abortion provider. That includes relatives of rapists. Even though Idaho's governor signed on the dotted line, he did express some serious concerns about whether this law is even constitutional. And speaking of constitutional, all eyes are gonna be on abortion rights over the next few months. The Supreme Court is getting ready to rule on the most significant abortion case in decades and looks ready to overturn or weaken the landmark ruling Roe v. Wade. If that happens, that would open the door even wider for states to follow Idaho's lead and seriously restrict or ban abortion access.
2: It is extremely humbling to be considered for Justice Breyer's seat, and I know that I could never fill his shoes. But if confirmed, I would hope to carry on his spirit.
0: That's Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson speaking to the Senate Judiciary Committee during her confirmation hearings this week. As a reminder, she's been tapped by President Biden to be the next justice to join the Supremes after Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement earlier this year. If confirmed, she would be the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. But before she can become the ninth member of the bench, she has to go through a series of public hearings, where senators and Americans can learn a little more about who she is and how she might decide cases. The hearings this week started with Jackson sharing how she grew up. Like so
2: many who had experienced lawful racial segregation firsthand, my parents, Johnny and Ellery Brown, left their hometown of Miami, Florida, and moved to Washington, D.C. to experience new freedom. When I was born here in Washington, my parents were public school teachers. And to express both pride in their heritage and hope for the future, they gave me an African name, Ketanji Onyika," which they were told means lovely one. My parents taught me that unlike the many barriers that they had had to face growing up, my path was clearer. So that if I worked hard and I believed in myself in America, I could do anything or be anything I wanted to be.
0: For Jackson, the law runs in her family. Her dad graduated from the University of Miami Law School, and she grew up watching him study. Then she felt the call of public service. Jackson's resume is basically a Supreme Court checklist— From graduating from Harvard Law, with honors, to clerking for the Supreme Court, to serving as a public defender, to most recently sitting on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. In fact, if confirmed, she would actually be the first former federal public defender to sit on the Supreme Court. Experience that Senator Amy Klobuchar said sets Jackson apart.
2: As a former federal public defender, you also understand that for a justice system to be truly workable, it must account for those who lack the resources to defend themselves.
0: As the senators got to ask Jackson questions, her time as a public defender came up a lot, particularly from Republicans, who accused Jackson of being soft on crime and brought up her defense of Guantanamo Bay detainees. But according to Seema Mohapatra, a visiting law professor at Southern Methodist University, Jackson was just doing her job. As a public defender, you do not get to choose what your cases
3: are, which is something that Judge Jackson made clear. And she also made clear her feeling that everybody deserves a good defense. Mohapatra
0: also told us, a lot of the headlines we might see coming out of these hearings need to be taken with a grain of salt. Because oftentimes senators use these hearings as a way to make a political point. Unfortunately, this is pretty common
3: in both sides of the aisle, depending on who is being questioned. And it has become much more political. There was a hope that the fact that this was a historic nomination, the fact that she's so incredibly well credentialed that maybe politics would be set aside. But unfortunately, we did not see that. We have not seen that I think that what we have to realize is very little of what the questioning that was done by Republican senators has been about her actual record. We could see that with Ted Cruz asking a question about critical race theory that had nothing to do with anything that she has ruled about. And then when we have people bringing up questions that are misrepresenting her sentencing in child pornography cases, we have seen that she's very reasonable in terms of her sentencing. It's actually very comparable to Republican judges. So this is not anything extraordinary, but it is for the purpose of making those headlines and kind of having these viral moments.
0: Senators also use this week as a way to read between the lines on how Jackson might rule on certain issues once she's on the bench, like a woman's right to choose, which, by the way, she believes is settled law. Typically, nominees try to be tight-lipped on how they might rule in future cases. But Mohapatra told us, we already have a sense of where Jackson falls on a lot of issues. I would say that in terms of her judicial philosophy, she actually
3: has more trial experience, more experience than most of the people that are currently sitting on the court. And and we have a lot of opinions that we can see of hers. And so we actually have a lot of data that we can see in terms of how she rules. So I thought that she was actually quite forthcoming compared to some past um, hearings that we've seen.
0: Besides senators trying to go viral, there were also some heartwarming moments this week.
3: I think that one of the moments that stood out the most to me as a working mother, and that probably stood out to many working mothers, was when she was talking to her daughters and acknowledging that, you know, she might not have gotten the balance of work and home life completely right all the time, but that, you know, she's trying her best and that she loved them. And that kind of admission and that kind of humanity, I think, was beautiful. I think that it's important to see her as a whole person and a real person, and I found that really compelling,
0: that statement of hers. Once KBJ is done getting grilled on Capitol Hill, the Senate will vote on whether to confirm her to the highest court in the land. She'll need 51 votes, which she's expected to get. And even though Jackson wouldn't change the ideological balance of the court, there's no doubt her confirmation would still be historic. One of the things that
2: having uh, diverse members of the court does is it provides for the opportunity for role models. Since I was nominated to this position, I have received so many notes and letters and photos from little girls around the country who tell me that they are so excited for this opportunity and that they have thought about the law in new ways because I am a woman, because I am a black woman. So having meaningful numbers of women and people of color, I think matters. This morning, turmoil at one of the most famous companies in the world. Disney, which spans iconic properties from Marvel, ESPN, and Hulu, to cruises and parks, including Disney World, now facing a
0: fierce internal debate. Over the past few days, the Walt Disney Company has gotten into some hot water, both with politicians and with its own employees who've been walking off the job. So what exactly is going down at Disney? We'll explain in 60 seconds. Disney is based in California, but it's got a major presence in Florida too, thanks to Disney World. So Florida politics are bound to affect the company and its employees. And Florida is no stranger to controversial legislation. Most recently, Florida lawmakers passed the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, which is likely to be signed by Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis pretty soon. The bill prohibits discussing sexual orientation or gender identity with young students, a move that critics say would be damaging to the mental health of LGBTQ students, teachers, and parents. But despite a lot of public outcry, Disney execs stayed quiet as a mouse as the bill worked its way through the legislature. And CEO Bob Chapek only condemned the bill once it was passed by Florida lawmakers. A lot of Disney employees were not impressed by that slow response and have been staging walkouts since last week. And so far, those protests seem to be working. Chapek announced that Disney will be pausing any political donations in Florida and will be supporting advocates fighting similar bills in other states. We'll also note Disney leadership isn't just facing pressure from its employees, it's also getting caught up in political crossfire. Florida's governor Ron DeSantis came out swinging against Disney, calling it a, quote, woke corporation and slammed its business interests in China. And other Republicans are also hopping on this anti-Disney train. How this showdown between Disney and DeSantis will end is anybody's guess. But considering DeSantis is a potential presidential contender looking for some national attention, and Disney is one of the country's biggest corporations, our guess is this wild ride is far from over. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. It's been over a month since Russia invaded Ukraine. And this week, President Biden flew to Europe to meet with NATO allies where they talked about everything from imposing more sanctions on Russia to bolstering military support in Europe. But as the international community continues to present a united front, one global power is notably sitting on the sidelines, China. To understand why people are watching what China does here so closely, we spoke to David Rennie, the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. So David, David, what is the background that we need to know on the China-Russia relationship? Are they friends? Are they enemies? What's the deal?
1: They are so much closer now than they've been for a very long time. And, you know, it's come and gone. So there was a time when, at the very beginning of communist China, the Soviet Union was their big brother. Then, in the 1960s, the two great communist powers fell out massively, basically because Chairman Mao was... Kind of too crazy even for the Soviets. By the time he got to the 1970s, they nearly had a war. Why are we now talking about Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, and Xi Jinping, China's supreme leader, as kind of best geopolitical friends? What has happened? Well, really, what's happened is that the two countries, particularly over the last kind of 10 years, have basically decided that the one thing that they agree about more than anything else is that America is the enemy and that America is in decline that democracy is on the way out, that one party's strongman rule, like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping offer, is the future. The one last piece of that puzzle that had been missing until this year was taking the step to become kind of friends when it costs something in terms of military adventures and taking risks. And so one of the kind of the classic Chinese phrases was We're never going to sign up to something like an alliance with Russia. What changed this year was as they really felt that America's decline was creating a historical opportunity, led the two top leaders, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, to sign this really unusual, really remarkable joint statement. And they did it on the very first day, the opening day of the Beijing Winter Olympics. It was a real moment. I mean, you know, ambassadors here in Beijing and foreign governments. They were really shocked by how far the two countries went. So that was already a kind of big political deal. Then, less than a month later, Vladimir Putin rolls into Ukraine.
0: And how has China reacted to Putin invading Ukraine?
1: In previous times, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 and took Crimea, the Chinese basically abstained at the UN. China was very reluctant to kind of endorse a kind of crazy military adventure. And not this time. This time, completely different. Although China's official position to this day is that China is a peace loving giant, if you actually listen at all carefully, it is a fake neutrality. It is a, a pro Russian, anti American pseudo neutrality because the next thing that China says after, you know, we'd like everyone to talk is, but of course, this is America's fault. Russia was acting in self defense. This is because America bullied Russia and pushed the borders of NATO right up to Russia's frontiers. And here in China, where we have obviously a very, very strictly censored state media and strictly censored internet, the images that your listeners see on the news uh, or on the web of bombed children's hospitals, of women and children fleeing to other countries, most Chinese don't see those. And that appears to be because the big guy at the top, Xi Jinping, has decided that if China breaks with Russia, and criticizes Vladimir Putin, then that would be a win for America. And so all of the suffering of the people of Ukraine, all of those millions of refugees, all of those dead children in children's hospitals, China is making it very clear that it could not care less, that none of that matters as much as the overwhelming priority, which is denying America a win.
0: I think a lot of people in our audience have asked us questions of how specifically is China involved? And based on what you've said, it sounds like diplomatically they're standing by Putin, even if they're not doing so in a really explicit way. They're doing it in a pretty obvious way. Are there any other ways that China has been involved in this conflict or potentially could get into this conflict that go beyond those?
1: So that's the kind of many billion dollar question or the many kind of billion ruble question. It's not because worth very much. You're right. At the, at the moment, you know, most of the support has been uh, kind of diplomatic. What are we looking for next? Recently, we saw the Americans say they were concerned that Russia had asked China for military assistance and that they were concerned that China might give that. What's interesting is that when I've talked to ambassadors and diplomats and Chinese sources here, there's a bit of kind of doubt that is that either kind of true or would it amount to very much and the, the basic reason is a china is still kind of doesn't like to get caught behaving badly you know if this was a kind of playground and these were two kind of school bullies china is kind of the the sneaky kid that steals the exam papers and sells them russia is the kind of kid that pulls a knife on the teacher and burns the gym down you know they're kind of different <laughs> and now they're hanging out together and we don't know how that works the big 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 way that china could help russia Is that China is Russia's only friend with lots of money? The Chinese economy and the Russian economy are a really good fit. Russia sells oil and gas and minerals and food. And China has tons of money, but not much farmland, very little oil and gas. As we see the United States talk about, you know, we're not going to buy any Russian oil and gas. To what extent do the Chinese replace those Western customers? And one of the kind of interesting questions there is, how much pain is China willing to pay for backing up Russia? And everyone's guessed till now is not a a lot of pain.
0: A lot of people have opined that China's seeing this conflict as permission to pursue a more aggressive strategy around Taiwan. And I'm curious, how you're thinking about the comparisons people make between these two situations.
1: It's a completely reasonable comparison to make. The Chinese are furious if you make it. The Chinese line is, Vladimir Putin is conducting a self-defensive operation in a different country, Ukraine. And Taiwan is not a different country. If you talk to people in Beijing, the government here, they say, no, no, no. Taiwan is a province of China that has broken away from the motherland. So how dare you say there's a parallel? But of course there's a parallel. Because what did Vladimir Putin say when he rolled his tanks and troops into Ukraine? He said, well, Ukraine is a historical mistake. It's not really a country at all. They're basically Russians. And there is quite a lot of evidence that beyond that, Putin believed his own propaganda to some extent. Now you pivot to Beijing and you imagine Xi Jinping watching that stuff And he is seeing this country that supposedly doesn't exist, that's supposedly going to welcome its Russian liberators with flowers, and they're fighting back. Now, Xi Jinping gives speeches every year in which he says that Taiwan isn't a country, but you would hope that they have the kind of self-reflection to think, okay, well, maybe actually Taiwan might fight in ways that we don't expect. And you are seeing lots of discussions in Taiwan about maybe we need to really, really think about how we defend ourselves. And you can be sure that the Pentagon and others are looking at all of those shoulder-launched missiles that are doing you know, such incredible damage to the Russian army. And I think it would be very surprising if, over the next couple of years, the, the warehouses of Taiwan are not filling up with similar weapons to try and make them a harder target. The other thing that China is clearly looking at is, okay, America is very upset with Ukraine, but America also appears to be cautious. America is making absolutely clear that it's not going to send American soldiers in. The Chinese look at that and they think, okay, this confirms what we believe. America is basically done with fighting reckless wars overseas because Afghanistan and Iraq went really badly wrong for them. It's not very interested in fixing the world's problems. That's China's view. And they like that. That suits them just fine. And so they're wondering whether this is a sign that they could maybe one day take on Taiwan. The big picture is that dictatorships are disciplined and united and tough and can take pain. And that China has built an economy that no other country can ignore. And maybe they need to wait a bit and correct the mistakes that they see Russia making. But I think that is why you see the Chinese willing to kind of hang tough and and stand next to a guy who's bombing children's hospitals, because they are looking at the bigger picture. And to them, the bigger picture ends with China winning and America losing.
0: Yeah. And what are you going to be watching for in the next few weeks?
1: So a lot depends on what happens to Vladimir Putin. I mean, if Vladimir Putin ends up in any way humiliated, if his troops end up taking such losses that he has to strike a kind of deal, that isn't great for China. Because if that guy looks like a loser, then China's supreme leader just backed a loser. And that's not a good look for Xi Jinping. Vladimir Putin, you know, everyone is very concerned that if he thinks he's going to lose, he's not the kind of guy who goes down quietly. So does he do the stuff that we've seen Joe Biden warning about in public now, like use chemical weapons or biological weapons and then blame it on the Ukrainians? Because he did it in Syria, Does that change China's thinking? You know, if you look at the next few months, that's what we're going to be watching. Does China get what it wants, which is the West falls apart, Putin pulls off something that looks like a win, or does Putin do stuff so crazy that China really finds it hard to swallow? Or worst of all, does Vladimir Putin look like a loser? Because then Xi Jinping made a mistake in saying that Vladimir Putin was his best friend. And the problem with the Chinese system is that the big guy here never makes mistakes. And so that would be a big political crisis here.
0: Thank you so much, David. Before we go, we want to make sure you mark your calendar for this Sunday, because it's time for the Oscars. To get caught up on what to watch and what to expect from this year's Academy Awards, we're talking to the host of Pop Cultured with the Skim, Bridget Armstrong. Bridget told us First, this won't be like the kind of sad looking Oscars from last year. There are still some COVID precautions, but people are ready for the red carpet to be back in full swing.
4: So the last few years, the Oscars have held a ceremony, but you saw a few of the actors there. A lot of stuff was broadcast because of safety precautions. So this year, the feeling is that it's the return to what the Oscars used to be.
0: But despite a return to normal, audiences don't wanna see a totally pre-pandemic Oscars and have asked the Academy to make some major changes.
4: One of the larger conversations about the Oscars being out of touch is around the fact that they rarely recognize, like, really popular movies. Oftentimes, the Oscars may go for artistic or well-crafted movies that maybe a lot of people haven't seen or people find kind of boring. Even this year, they did, like, a Twitter engagement thing where they asked people to weigh in on some of their fan favorites from the last year. And two of the movies that people tweeted about the most were the Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man No Way Home, and Army of the Dead, which is like a zombie movie. And there's no world in which you can imagine either of those movies being nominated for an Oscar, right? It's not to say there aren't some popular movies in there, but yeah, it feels like as the Oscars go on, the more disconnected they are from what we actually like. And the other controversy that's been talked about a lot of the past years is Oscars So White. So, you know, about seven years ago, about 2015, the Academy didn't nominate any actors of color. None of the performances that were nominated were from actors of color. And that happened for two years in a row. So people responded with the Oscars, so white hashtag. And the Oscars noticed that and they decided to do something about it. Or they said they decided to do something about it. So they tried to basically add more diversity to the voting group that basically makes these decisions on who's going to get the award. So they added more diversity to the Academy. And, you know, over the years since they've been working on that project, it's been up and down. So this year is actually not as diverse as last year, but it is certainly more diverse than like seven years ago.
0: As the Academy has tried to respond to concerns about lack of representation, it's also made another major shift. It's changed its tune when it comes to streaming. Historically, the Oscars kind of snubbed companies like Netflix and Apple in favor of traditional studio movies. But they seem to have gotten over whatever beef they had.
4: This year is the first year where the two frontrunners for Best Picture are both from streamers. So there's Power of the Dog from Netflix and then Coda from Apple TV+. So it looks like this year we will probably have the first winner from a streaming service. That is a huge difference than what we've seen in the past few years, where the Academy kind of, frankly, seemed reluctant to even include movies from streaming services. But, you know, over the past few years, there's been a pandemic. A lot of us are not going to the movie theaters. A lot of the movies are coming out straight to HBO Max, straight to Netflix. And so the Academy sort of had to evolve along with people. The Academy had to adapt
0: because that is where we're watching movies. But even as the Academy has tried to evolve with its audience, this year's awards are still proving to be controversial.
4: The big controversy this year is the fact that the Oscars decided to not air about eight categories that were previously aired. And those categories are largely like the the behind-the-scenes stuff, for the most part. And so there's been a lot of controversy about that because, like, film editors, the folks who do makeup and hairstyling, right? The feeling is that the Oscars is the time where they finally get their recognition. These elements in movies that really make them great that we notice, and we don't often like hear their names, right? Like you probably don't necessarily know who did the makeup on, you know, Dune or something. But the feeling is that the Oscars was the time to recognize those people. The other controversy is around one of the stars of West Side Story. So Rachel Zegler, who was in West Side Story, West Side Story is also nominated for Best Picture says she wasn't invited to the Oscars. You know, West Side Story is one of the few movies that's nominated this year that does not have a predominantly white cast. And so it's like, this doesn't look well that, like, one of the stars in the movie says she wasn't invited to the show.
0: This week, the Academy started singing a different tune after initially skipping out on an Oscars invite for Zegler and has invited her to be a presenter this Sunday. So that's all the -the behind-the-scenes drama. But when it comes down to it, the Oscars are still about movies. So we asked Bridget to tell us her predictions for which films are gonna take center stage on Sunday.
4: It's gonna be a Power of the Dog night. Power of the Dog is most likely going to win Best Picture. Jane Campion is most likely gonna take home Best Director. I cannot say whether or not you (laughs) should watch that one. Power (laughs) of the Dog is not one of my personal favorites. But the feeling is that Campion as a director is long overdue for this award. And it is the type of movie that the Oscars love and that it's beautiful. And it's set in a very specific time and the sets are very intricate. So it's the type of thing the Oscars love. Coda is another, the Apple TV Plus film, which is a really lovely, heartwarming film. That one is the underdog. It probably won't win for Best Picture, but I'd say watch that one. It's the type of thing you can watch with your family or your kids. Just a sort of good, lighthearted, warm movie that is well done.
0: For a deeper dive on what to expect at this year's Oscars and what to add to your watch list, check out the latest episode of Pop Cultured with the Skim. Happy listening! Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston. We had additional help this week from Sajin Koryelis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. And the SKIM's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feet again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the SKIM. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and pop cultured wherever you're already listening to us.